Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I am joined by my co-host, Wired senior editor, Michael Kalori. Aloha. Hey, Hi, Hi, how are you? Aloha. Are you in Hawaii this week? Uh, it's a state of mind. It's like Margaritaville. It's anywhere you want it to be. I'm going to have to take that into consideration since we're not <laughs> going many places this summer. We're also joined this week by Wired senior editor Angela Watercutter, who I just found out, despite the fact that she has been at Wired for many years and is one of our very esteemed colleagues. This is your first time on the Gadget Lab? Yes. Yes. Hi, everybody. Uh, I am I am both a Gadget Lab virgin and a aspiring parrot head in these uh, times of wishing I was in Hawaii. So. I really can't believe that we haven't had you on yet, but I'm glad we're remedying the situation. I'm, I'm available anytime. I have more free time now than I normally would. <laughs> All right, we can't we can't promise remedies for everything these days, but we can have Angela on the podcast more. All right, today we're talking about something you are probably all very familiar with by now. And it's called doom scrolling. <laughs> maybe, I'm laughing when I say it, but it's not funny. Okay, maybe you didn't realize that's what it's called, but that's what we're calling it. It's that thing where you just stare at social media. You're constantly refreshing and scrolling. You're unable to tear yourself away from whatever fresh hell the world has cooked up in the past hour or two. And then suddenly it's two o'clock in the morning and you're so filled with anxiety that you can't sleep. Angela wrote a story about this for Wired.com recently, and so we've brought her on to solve all of our problems around doom scrolling <laughs> in about 30 minutes. Is that correct? Yeah. Again, we, we make no promises of remedies here on the Casual Lab podcast, <laughs> I've been told, but uh, I will do my best. Okay. So take us through why this is such a common coping mechanism right now. I mean, I think that it's just a matter of we feel like if we keep looking at the news and keep searching that there will be an answer, that there is some yellow brick road on Twitter that leads us to some better outcome. At least this is what happens with me. You know, I kind of keep scrolling and think eventually I'll see some good news or some sort of, you know, something else. The things that I normally would go to social media for, I still keep going, but then 
you just kind of keep finding more and more, um, you know, for lack of a better term, bad information or sad information. Um, and then once that starts, you kind of can't stop going down that completely different, but entirely distinct and um, less optimistic looking rabbit hole. And how is this different from our normal addiction to social media? I mean, I think it's just, um, we generally talk about social media addiction in the sense of like a FOMO kind of thing, you know, like in the, you know, what I call the before times, um, before quarantines uh, kind of set in um, around uh, late February, early March, you know, those of us who really kind of went down these social media rabbit holes were like checking our friend's Instagram and like seeing a party we missed or a dinner we didn't get to make it to or something or we'll... We're following, you know, celebrities or keeping up with whatever, you know, the sort of Twitter argument of the day is. Um, like there was news, of course. I mean, obviously, we, we keep up with social media because we want to just keep up with what's going on in the world. Um, but I think over the last, you know, five or six months, that's really kind of evolved. Now it's just sort of we're sort of diving in again and again into this onslaught of information, you know, like at the beginning of the quarantine, obviously, back in March, it was, you know, coronavirus infection rates and, you know, what what state was having a, you know, a new a new hotspot and should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? You know, all of these sort of um, things that were sort of in the news every day, by the way, wear masks. Um, but, you know, and then, a few, you know, a few months later with um, the death of George Floyd, you know, there was just so much more information about, you know, protests and, you know, videos of police brutality and things like that. And so it just became sort of something that we were going to in a different way, something that we were kind of diving into in a different way. Um, and I think that's where, you know, the shift came. I mean, it used to be some bad news and then some puppy videos. And now it's just mostly a lot of um, not, even not necessarily bad news, but just hard to take news, traumatic news. Um, things that, you know, normally kind of get broken up with other, with other pieces of information are now, um, this is mostly, um, it's mostly, I don't know, just traumatic to kind of con consume on a consistent and daily basis. So if you're scrolling and scrolling and you keep seeing bad news and you keep scrolling because you're convincing yourself that you are eventually maybe going to encounter some good news or maybe find some sort of resolution, like, in the 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 people that you talk to for this story, what what did they tell you is going on in your brain when you're scrolling? Um, yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a strange thing because it's like the you know the sort of I guess the addiction part of it is mostly us. I think that like it's you know we you know in a weird way you know like we could stop, but you know it's hard to um, it's hard to really sort of it's hard to really sort of fight that, um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, too, isn't necessarily even in our own brains. You know, one of the, the folks I talked to um, sort of researched social media and um, information tactics. And, you know, like, the thing is, is that the more that we look at these things on social media, the more that social media knows to push them into our feeds. So there's a little bit of a, like, cycle that happens there, too. Like, if you are doom scrolling, Twitter is just going to feed you more things to doom scroll and Facebook is going to kind of feed you more things to doom scroll. So you kind of, um, you kind of have to be aware with that. Um, there's another thing that one of the researchers told me, um, is that it kind of, it puts you in this sort of headspace, um, that, that researchers have known about since basically the days of television, which is like, you get convinced that the world is actually worse than it really is. And it, 
by constantly kind of scrolling through these things, it reinforces that. Um, the actual concept I just looked it up is the mean world syndrome, which is like, you know, it started back in the 70s where it was like you would watch, you know, like a police procedural or something like that and just think that like everyone was a mugger or everything was, you know, there was just um, sort of terrible things happening around every corner, which is actually um, in some cases not as true as people like to think if they just kind of constantly consume troubling information. That's a really interesting concept, this idea that the world is actually a more dangerous or worse place than it is because of just the kind of information you're being inundated with. Right. Well, and the flip side of that, though, is the, uh, and this is something I talked to another um, another academic about, is that, you know, um, the one of the things that's really been beneficial about social media is that it's been able to bring things to people's attention in a way that it never had before. You know, like people were able to, um, you know, sadly film police brutality and it was able to be shared in a certain way um, that brought it to more national attention than it wouldn't have, have been before. Um, but the flip side is that of that is that it's also a means of sharing a lot of very traumatic images um, in ways that could be damaging. Mike, what do you make of this? Well, you know, the thing, the thing that's occurred to me over the last five months now, four months, I don't know, I can't even remember, um, you know, seeing those traumatic images really sunk in when Instagram took a dark turn. Because for a very long time, no matter how bad the world was, no matter how bad the news was on Twitter or on Facebook or on, you know, the news app or the front page of the newspaper, you were always able to go to Instagram and Instagram was a happy place. It was like, you know, people on the beach, people posting pictures of their kids or their pets or the beautiful environment that they're vacationing in. And then, you know, it slowly started to turn because people started dying and you saw tributes being posted on Instagram. People started losing their jobs. And, you know, my Instagram feed got taken over with uh, like GoFundMes for medical expenses. Or if, you know, a lot of my friends like work at bars and restaurants and they were all of a sudden out of work and it started to darken the mood on Instagram. And then when, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests started rolling out all over the country there were those images were uplifting, but there was also an element of sorrow in those images because of what those images represented. You know, they represented the racism and they represented the killing and they represented all of this pain and grief. So Instagram has transformed from a happy place to another one of those reminders of how bad the world, you know, is, whether it actually is or whether that's just our perception of it. So I'm sort of left wondering, like, when I open my phone, where's the happy place? Where do I go? I'm just sort of blindly poking around on Reddit these days. Mm -hmm. And you're not into TikTok yet. You're not a TikToker, Mike. I'm far too old for TikTok. <laughs> yeah, you bring up a good point, Mike, which is that social media is now being filled with more and more calls to action, it, particularly Instagram. I'm noticing more of this, whether it's donating to a cause or acknowledging some form of social inequality and calling for justice or suggesting a reading list to someone or just calling attention to somebody who might be in need in your local community. And you really love to see it. And I say that genuinely. Uh, but it also means that social media has become less of a passive experience, right? Because you're being prompted to do things or you want to do things because it gives you this sense of 
control in a world in which we have no control right now or a sense of somehow contributing to a solution to all of these crises that we're facing like all at the same time. So there's that stimulation that's happening in your brain that we've heard about for a long time when you're on social media. It's like the kind of stimulation that you're not fully aware of. That's still happening. But now there's this very overt messaging on social media. There's like a very overt stimulation that you should try to help your community more. And I think that that can be a very positive thing. But I also think it means more than ever, we need to create some guardrails for ourselves around social media. Like, okay, this is the hour that I'm going to check it and spend time on it. And maybe during that hour, I might be inspired to go take another action in some way, which is good, but I'm not just going to scroll social media for three hours and feel totally overwhelmed, which admittedly, I feel a lot of the time. Yeah, that doesn't always work, though, because you know, we're we're in an environment like, you know, we're news reporters, we're sharing Twitter messages with each other all the time, like in Slack. And, you know, Twitter is part of our job. And I get sucked into doom scrolling at, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, and then again, at one thirty in the afternoon, and then again at dinner. It just like it keeps coming back to you. It's just the bad news never stops. <laughs> One of the other researchers I talked to, uh, a woman named Alyssa Richardson at USC's uh, Annenberg School, you know, she she mentioned to me, you know, she was saying that, you know, for she spoke, she did a book recently called um, Bearing Witness While Black um, that was sort of looking at, you know, uh, activism in, in the black community. And, you know, a lot of the activists she spoke to said that they don't really doom scroll, you know, because obviously they've been seeing these images their whole lives. And so, you know, for them, that you know that was that had been their life, and they just couldn't keep going back to um, to seeing those sort of terrible images over and over and over again. But the thing she pointed out was that for a lot of folks, then that the the inverse happened, and they started participating in things like the versus battles on Instagram, which was like you know Erica Badu and Jill Scott, you know having like a, a sing off battle on Instagram, and so like that in that case for you know for certain folks, it became this place to. Um, to sort of participate in um, acts of black joy uh, as, and use that as their, an act of resistance. Um, and so I thought that that was, you know, it's, it sort of depends on where you kind of come at it in terms of where you kind of draw those lines and, and put up those, like you were saying, Lauren, those, guard, those guardrails about like, this is my space to do X and this is my space to do Y. Absolutely. And what I'm hearing you say is, as I'm listening to you is actually what this maybe underscores for a lot of people is just how privileged our social media experience was before this time. That yeah. for a lot of us, what we got to see were like photos of pets and, and beach vacations and didn't mm -hmm. realize actually that that was a reflection of the world that we lived in and how privileged that was. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, then, and in a way, the, I guess, for lack of a better term, like the ability to doom scroll is itself an act of privilege. Like it is something that you can opt into, whereas for some people it's a more steady reality that, you know, they can't just like turn down their phone and say, well, you know, I don't have to look at that anymore. Right. All right. We're going to take a quick break and then come back with hopefully some guidance on how we can cut down on the bad kind of doom scrolling. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. 
Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Welcome back. All right, doom scrolling can be a hard cycle to break. And you might say, I'll just delete the apps from my phone. But then you might miss critical news updates or things happening with friends and family or just become a little less aware of the important stuff happening in the world around you. So to figure this out, we've assembled our team of expert doom scrollers here on the Gadget Lab. And by that, I mean us. So we're going to go around and say how we've managed to keep the doom scrolling at bay. Angela, what's your tactic? Um, so the short answer is, uh, I don't think I actually have found a way to stop doom scrolling. I deactivated Facebook at one point, but, uh, I was still getting notifications. So either I didn't do the deactivation correctly or Facebook found me anyway, which wouldn't be that surprising to be honest. Um, and so it was telling me about like photos I had been tagged in and then I would, you know, re-log on and the cycle would continue. But I did find out that my barber came back to town, so I will be getting a haircut. So maybe that was a good outcome of that particular uh, reactivation. Um, but I did, I have now re-deactivated, that sounds right, uh, re-deactivated my account. Um, so I'm at least off Facebook, but yeah, Twitter and Instagram, like I kind of can't stop simply because like you said, like we're journalists, we work in news. There is a little bit of that FOMO of just like, we might miss something that we need to know about. Um, but I have tried to set a, a few better boundaries of like, it's midnight, anything now can hap- can wait until the morning or whatever it happens to be. And I also, I close my laptop on weekends. I mean, it doesn't stop me from using my phone, but um, it does at least cut down a little bit of the, the screen time of it. Walks help, but that's about it. <laughs> Mike, have you done anything to, you know, limit this any better than I am? I have, you know, and I think part of it is just because of the shelter in place. Like a lot of my habits have changed, but in particular, like news consumption habits, um, I've taken like actively taken steps over the last few weeks to, to trim back how much time I'm spending looking at things on my phone. Um, the big one for me, I'm an Android user, so I have the digital well-being tools that are built into Android on my phone. So I can set app timers. Um, I can set bedtime mode, which is really helpful. The app timers, at first, it was like I was just wasting so much time in, in Instagram. So I set uh, a 30-minute time limit on Instagram per day, and I set a 90-minute time limit on Twitter per day, which you know, <laughs> right. I was hitting regularly. Like, it's sad to think about that, but I was an hour and a half a day on my phone just looking at Twitter. And I trimmed that back to 30 minutes. So I have 30 minutes for Instagram and 30 minutes for Twitter. And it's really helped. And even if I hit them before lunch, like, that's fine. That means I don't look at them in the evening. Um, The other thing that I've been doing is uh, I've gotten more into my Kindle in the evenings Mm -hmm. because, like, you know, when you're holding a Kindle and you're reading, it satisfies that itch of like holding an electronic screen in your hand and looking at it. So you don't feel the urge to look at your phone. It sort of like tricks your brain into thinking like, okay, I am looking at a screen. So everything's going to be okay. I'm in my happy place. This is just like, I'm realizing how, how backwards and sad this all sounds as I'm saying it, but this is, this is like, these are, these are how you break bad habits. Right. Um, so I've been reading more, especially in the evenings. Uh, and then the last thing that I've done is, uh, sort of curated my audio consumption. 
with podcasts. Like I could just listen to bad news podcasts all the time, but I limit myself to like one a day. And then I spend the other, you know, hour or half hour of podcast listening, listening to something else, like an interview with a musician or like a, a Ram Dass lecture. I've been listening to a lot of those recently, which have, have been very healing. Mike, those are all really good solutions. And I love how specific they are. Like, I feel like our show notes will just be like an entire graph of Mike recommending these very specific <laughs> things for you to do step by step to stop doom scrolling. And if that doesn't work, we throw our hands up because we can't help you. I mean, it's what it's also what Angela was just saying, which is that like, it's all about willpower. And it's all about like recognizing the bad habit and then trying to change it. And your brain chemistry is going to prevent you from actually changing it. So you, you have work to do to do it. Right. What have you been doing, Lauren? Well, I haven't done a very good job of curbing my doom scrolling habit. So to solve this, I went to the source of all doom scrolling darkness for me. The other day, I went to Twitter and I asked people (laughs) on Twitter if they had come up with any good solutions to this problem. So I'm going to share some of what people told me on the social media platform. Nice. Uh, One of the more popular suggestions came from some guy named... Walt Mossberg. Do you, does anyone know who he is? <laughs> no. Don't be coy. <laughs> uh, yes, Walt is uh, my former boss and a dear friend and mentor. Uh, he says, watch old TV comedies you like and either keep the phone out of reach or ration your phone use. So the common thread line I found with many of these suggestions, Mike, is what you were suggesting, is that people weren't saying get rid of screens. They were suggesting diversions on the screens. So there were lots of votes for Kindle, right? So you can read, but not be tempted to scroll social media. Um, Someone chimed in and said, try doom binging on Netflix instead. (laughs) That was Melanie Ensign. So you're still like watching a screen, but instead you're watching Netflix. Uh, Nicole Wynn, who we know from the Wall Street Journal, said, try joy scrolling through pre-COVID camera roll. And then it had a crying face emoji. Um, So you're still on your screens, but maybe you're doing something that feels a little bit more joyful from the before times. Um, other people, though, did have kind of like a more uh, like a more severe approach, like Cecilia D'Anastasio from our team said, I deleted Twitter off my phone and it has done wonders. And Nick Thompson, our editor in chief, replied and said, same. So I think this means we have official permission from Nick to not be on Twitter, if I understand that correctly. <laughs> our colleague, Kara Platoni, said, you have to hide one and only one of these things under the bed. One phone to yourself. (laughs) So just throw yourself under the bed if you can't get away from screens. Um, And then another person, Simone Yetch, who happened to be on our Wired cover in January of this year, said, text me and ask me to tell you to stop. And she said in a follow-up tweet that that has worked for her, that when she texts people and says, please tell me to stop scrolling, and then someone says, stop scrolling, and then she, and then she does. Uh, and maybe at that point you have a conversation with a friend instead of doom scrolling on Twitter or Instagram or anywhere else. <laughs> so those were just some solutions I crowdsourced from the internet. Um, and they all sound, honestly, they all sound better than doom scrolling. I would even take doom binging on Netflix over doom scrolling. So maybe I need to try some of these. Well, and to, uh, to speak to that, uh, have a friend text you to stop. I do have to give uh, credit to uh, Karen Ho, who's a reporter at Quartz, who was one of the inspirations behind this piece because every night at about, uh, I usually see it at 11 p.m. midnight my time, um, but I'm not sure um, 
I'm not sure exactly when she sends it out because now Twitter th- shoots things back up, up and forth. But um, she just tweets around, you know, sleep time every night. Hey, are you doom scrolling? And I just see that in my feed and I'm like, thank you, Karen. Appreciate that. And then <laughs> I look for another 10 to 15 and then I put my phone down. <laughs> That's so, a good friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we're going to take another super quick break, and then when we come back, we're going to do recommendations that may, quite honestly, may put you back on screens. We'll be right back. I'm Reid Hoffman. And I'm Aria Finger. If you're interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman, and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts. Time for recommendations. Angela, what's yours this week? Um, so mine is uh, the HBO series, I May Destroy You. Um, the creator, writer, director, showrunner, star, um, genius extraordinaire, Michaela Cole. Uh, she's somebody I've loved since uh, she had a show called Chewing Gum that was originally in the UK and then landed on Netflix a couple of years ago. Um, but the, her new show, I mean, I May Destroy You, it's just so smart and raw and it's kind of this um unblinking look at a young woman putting together the pieces of the night that um that she was drugged and sexually assaulted and it kind of does this unlinear thing of going back and forth in time and have having you sort of learn things as she remembers them and as she she deals with them it's just so well written and um just really extremely extremely well done um it's to the point of the entire discussion we've had so far, I mean, there are times when it is hard to watch, but I think it's hard to watch in a way that, like, a lot of people need to see. Um, so, yeah, and there was a great profile of her in New York Magazine. So if you want to know more about how she um, how she came up with the show and how she brought it to life, it's, it's a really good read. Apparently, Netflix offered her a million dollars, and she said no because they wouldn't give her enough creative control. That is on my watch list for this weekend, for sure. Both I May Destroy You and Chewing Gum. Yeah, Absolutely. Mike, what's yours? Um, I want to recommend uh, that you explore the rich musical world of Ennio Morricone. Uh, He's an Italian film composer. He died this week at the age of 91. Uh, You know his work because he has scored uh, a lot of stuff from the early 60s until the present day. Uh, Most people know him as the guy who wrote the theme song to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly and all of the Sergio Leone uh, spaghetti westerns he also did um, some of Sergio Leone's other movies and Quentin Tarantino and Dario Argento and you've you've seen a movie with an Ennio Morricone score um, he is just a brilliant composer and I you know I've been a fan of working to his music for many years like uh, if you go on any streaming service there are playlists that are you know, curated for specific moods. There's like the Morricone Love Collection. There's the Morricone Western Collection. There's the Gangster Collection. Uh, there's one that's called Morricone Work From Home, which is kind of fun because it it's like, it's not soothing work music. It's a lot of like sort of rambunctious, playful music. Uh, but there's always a song of his to fit the mood. 
his music is is a big mix of uh, avant-garde and pop and serious weighty emotional music it jumps around a lot it's kind of hard to like pick an album or a soundtrack that's sort of the same all the way through but uh there's a lot of people who've curated their own morricone playlists on places like apple music and spotify and even on youtube so i would recommend that you go and you give it a shot if you're working at home if you're you know in a mood to write or if you're drawing or if you just want to be productive uh there is a uh, there's a morricone soundtrack for your activity I'd also recommend that you go uh, to the New York Times and read The Appreciation of Morricone that was written by John Zorn, uh, another great modern-day composer uh, who has a lot in common with him. Uh, so yeah, that's my recommendation. Get into the Italian soundtrack master. Can I share one more kind of story? Yeah, please. Just I just remember um, when uh, Quentin Tarantino did a panel at Comic-Con a couple years ago for The Hateful Eight, and at the very end, he just sort of dropped this bomb that Morricone was going to do the score for that film. And like the entire, it was Hall H, which is the biggest hall at Comic-Con. And the place went nuts. Like, I'm like, this is normally how it sounds when like Robert Downey Jr. walks out in an Iron Man mask. You know, like, I mean, it was just like, like, it was like that thing where you like, you think that like maybe people know Morricone, maybe people don't. But like if that many like sci-fi and comic book fans go crazy over his work you just know how far that it that it reaches um and also maybe when tarantino yells something you just feel compelled to do something because it's scary but um but yeah i just (laughs) he it is amazing how much his work is appreciated sort of across the board rest in peace yeah absolutely what's uh what's on your playlist lauren this week i'm recommending the netflix effect part of the Land of the Giants podcast series created by Recode and Vox. And this is a series that's all about the history of Netflix. It is led by Recode editors Peter Kafka and Ronnie Mola. I've listened to two episodes so far. I believe that three or four episodes are available in the feed, but they're planning on doing a couple more. So it's really a a mini series. I think there will be like, you know, five to seven episodes total when all is said and done. But it's a really, really great narrative show about Netflix and how much Netflix has changed our media and video streaming world. The first episode was all about the infamous Netflix work culture. They operate under kind of this radical transparency. It's an incredibly tough work environment, it feels like, where, where colleagues are constantly sort of you know, supposed to offer constructive criticism to each other. And if it's determined that you're just no longer working as a member of the team, you are just unceremoniously fired. Um, But at the same time, people seem to enjoy working there. Some people do. Uh, They feel like they're part of sort of this like big, you know, this, this, this bigger mission, uh, in a way, which is really interesting. The second episode is all about Netflix versus Blockbuster in the early days. For those of you who remember Blockbuster, also an excellent episode. Um, and I'm just starting to dive into episode three. So yeah, I recommend it if you're looking for a diversion from doom scrolling. The Netflix Effect, part of the Land of the Giants podcast series by Recode and Vox. So Land of the Giants, this is the one they did at Amazon last year, right? Correct. And in fact, we had Jason Del Rey, who did the Amazon one on the Gadget Lab at some point last year. I should note, I also used to work for Recode, so I consider folks like Jason and Peter and Ronnie friends. Uh, So, you know, they've come on our show and uh, we may have Peter on in the future to talk about Netflix. So, uh, so yeah, like, you know, consider consider my bias there, I guess. I used to work for Recode. But that said, I I really enjoy this podcast. Noted. (laughs) 
All right, that's our show for this week. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter, where we will be doom scrolling. Just check the show notes for our Twitter handles. This show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Bye for now, and we'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Review's Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you. And how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From PR.